there's rumors that Ashanti wanted the I'm Real remix that was released by J-Lo, that she wanted the Ain't, it, Ain't It's Funny remix that was released by J-Lo. Maybe she needs to team up with uh, Mariah Carey and they can <laughs> um, go after J-Lo together for stealing, stealing her songs. Hi, I'm Jason Marcos. And I'm Barry Hamaguchi. As a corollary to our last episode, this week we both chose songs by artists that we don't normally care for. With these artists, we didn't buy into the hype until it was too late. This week, we're talking about the artists we love to hate and then hated to love. This is Flop Redeemer. So how's it going, Jason? It's it's going well. Yeah, you know? <laughs> Still stuck in our houses. Still stuck in our... I feel like the the weeks just pass by. They're unrecognized, un- indistinguishable from each other at this point. Yeah. I mean, I had a book club meeting and I I have not finished the last 10 books, maybe. I just show up. <laughs> that's book... Uh, I feel like that's book club life. I used to belong to a book club and very rarely did I ever actually finish the book. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm I'm always interested in it, but I, I just... When I want to relax or if I have some time at the end of the day after work, my mind doesn't go to reading. And then I, and then I intend, I put it on my nightstand, I intend to read before bed. And instead of reading, you know, the Jessica Simpson memoir, which was our last assignment, mm-hmm. I'll just scroll through Twitter or play solitaire on my iPad. Oh, yeah. Simple escapism. Yeah. And so I'm trying to get better at it. I am always interested, but... Um, yeah, I truly have not completed any of the books. Are there are there enough people in your book club that actually finish the book that it, you can go unnoticed? Oh, literally, I am the only one who never finishes the book. It's, it's, oh, it is that's a, really good. It is a thing at this point, so everyone understands. I don't even really weigh in on what book to read because I, I feel like it's unfair. You mean you didn't recommend reading Jessica Simpson's autobiography? That was that was my recommendation. I, oh, I did oh. not finish it. <laughs> Everyone else did. Even though the last time we met to choose the book was in February before the pandemic. Oh, wow. Okay. So you've had fully like five months to finish reading this book. Five months of a post-apocalyptic hell. <laughs> I'm sure that the Jessica Simpson autobiography is some dense reading. I'm, I'm I'm sure it is actually delightful. I am at okay. chapter five, so about a, a chapter a month, <laughs> and uh, it is delightful. It is you know I don't know it's 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 actually very similar to this you know what we're doing on this podcast where you know you you have this preconceived notion mm-hmm. or or so much of what you think you know about a person is shaped by the narrative and whatever was happening at the time right and maybe it's interviews and the way the interviews were framed or maybe it's um you know things that other people said. Uh, paparazzi photos, whatever, it all contributes to like how receptive you are to that artist's output at that time, right? And I think like she kind of talks about everything that was going on. She talks about like what, you know, the trauma in her life and and how that affected, you know, the things that she did and the men that she dated and 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 all of that. And and but she does it in such a candid and um open way. She's just mm-hmm. very engaging and you know, she's she just sounds she comes across as very relatable. Does she talk about her father coming out? Um, very, very briefly. Like, I mean, I always not, wonder how that panned out because it just kind of happened. It's one of those things. I think generally she's she's very kind to her family. 
kind in a way that like I mean she's honest about who they are and 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 the decisions that they've made and I guess I do want to say kind of like the trauma that some of those decisions have had on her life and that's certainly one of them. I I think she talks she talks more about like her father's decision to get a divorce mm. more than him coming out. It's just kind of a wild story that I feel like was never really covered in depth, I guess, by the media. In the way that, like, I feel like we knew a lot about, like, uh, when Matthew Knowles and Tina Knowles got a divorce and what happened what happened with them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's because more people care about Beyonce, but... <laughs> I mean, there is there is the Beyonce of it all. But I think, yeah, like, the whole, the whole um, Jessica Simpson's family story is interesting. It is. And, um... I have a, I mean, I have a, I have a Jessica Simpson song that I was thinking of doing. So you could, you could, you can bring in that color commentary of what was happening in her life. Sure. I went out there and I bought, what was that album called? With You, that With You was the single. And that album didn't, didn't do well. It was the one that had like the cover of Angels on it. Oh. Back in the day, like I went, I went out and I bought that album on like release day. Wow. I was like so into it. Wow. I, I did see Jessica Simpson live at what was the Gibson Amphitheater. Is she opening for someone or? No, it was her concert. Ryan Cabrera opened for her. Why did, wait, oh, so you you intentionally purchased tickets to see Jessica Simpson. I would like to clarify that our friend, our mutual friend, Eric, worked for a music promotion company at the time. Oh, okay, yes, yes. That's probably why I bought that album. I think I was just I was just drinking the Kool Aid from Eric on on Jessica Simpson. But I did I mean I did like uh, some songs on that album. She's one of those where I she has a great voice. Yeah, but it's not like like objectively it's a great voice. It's not my favorite in everything. Yeah, but like I do like some of her songs. Yeah, I mean you know it's funny you could think about Jessica Simpson and you know at the time when Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera made it onto the new Mickey Mouse Club, Jessica Simpson was also supposed to be a part of that cast. Yeah, she talks about that. And she like <laughs> choked she like choked on her mm-hmm. final audition or whatever. And mm-hmm. I would assume that her space on the show went to Britney Spears. No, they actually reduced the number of spaces because she was so bad. Oh. They actually they were supposed to bring eight. They ended up only bringing on seven. She was supposed oh. to be the eighth, but she did so poorly. Can I think of okay I was I was very very into MMC back in the day. So that was Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, uh Nikki, I can't remember her last name but she's an actress now. There was Tate, TJ, Ryan, Ryan Gosling mm-hmm. and Justin Timberlake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah so there was seven there was yeah. seven people in that class. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be eight. Yeah, four four boys and three girls. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know like at the time I would have found Jessica Simpson and Britney Spears a little bit indistinguishable from each other. I feel like there's a little bit of like, you could squint your eyes, even when they debuted, I feel like they were kind of trying to style all of those teen pop stars like Jessica Simpson and Mandy Moore, especially to resemble Britney Spears in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With like a high pony. And just like, the, just something about their facial features, you know, yeah. man, you think about that one seminal experience for Jessica Simpson, not being on the Mickey Mouse Club. And how I feel like that kind of put her behind Christina and Britney forever. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's fair. Um, Even though she kind of, she kind of, to me, blends, blends together the best of what Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears have to offer. 
She has like a Britney Spears quality to her voice, but with a little more power that verges on a Christina Aguilera. Mm -hmm. Not quite Mm -hmm. as strong as Christina Aguilera, but not as, and not quite as like. Brassy. No, like Britney Spears has like that baby, that baby voice Mm. that she puts on for singing. Like Jessica Simpson has aspects of that to her, her actual singing voice. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I was going to say RIP Jessica Simpson. (laughs) Oh no, she's still around. Still around, still a billionaire. Oh yeah, I mean she's got yeah. That's 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 the that's the secret we need to unlock is like how you can have a, a pretty much failed music career but still cash in. Like the most lucrative commercial licensing deal of all time. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing. Oh, you know what? I you know I was gonna revisit this. I was looking for any potential flop retractions that we needed to make this week. In the last episode, we were talking briefly about. You know, the criticisms against Mariah in the 90s and the belief that maybe she was only a studio performer, that she couldn't sing live. Um, I brought up the whole timeliness of like Millie Vanilli at that time. Mm -hmm. And I had kind of recalled um, a similar experience for New Kids on the Block. Okay. And when I looked it up, it was, you know, I thought it was about auto-tuning or like just like zhuzhing up their vocals in the studio. But there was actually an allegation against them from um, like a former associate that claimed that they actually did not sing any of those songs, that those songs were completely like ghost vocals. Oh. And I, I think that they those those claims were unfounded. They were kind of like um, they were believed to be like the false claims of a disgruntled former associate. But those claims did go out there. And um, in order to prove themselves, maybe this was a common thing in the early 90s. They went on to the Arsenio Hall show to perform live to prove themselves. Interesting. So not a flop retraction, but, you know, a a flop revisitation. (laughs) I mean, he was the Arsenio Hall show really was the the hip the place to be in late night in the early 90s yeah i think i feel like if you were like a young mm-hmm. prime music consumer you were mm-hmm. turning you were tuning into arsenio Hall. yeah johnny carson was not breaking um mariah carey yeah no <laughs> anyway so that's it i think that uh we can kind of close out this intro yeah i have no retractions i just move forward all right awesome uh let's let's take a quick break and we'll be back with our first segment All right, so today, you know, we're talking about artists that we don't really typically listen to, we don't always like, but, you know, there's a song that came out that we actually really do enjoy and made us kind of take a second look at their career and 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 maybe even why don't we like them to begin with, right? So the person I'm talking about today is Sam Smith and their single, How Do You Sleep? Mm-hmm. Sam Smith first appeared uh, in on Disclosure's debut single "Latch" back in 2014. The, the uh, that song actually came out in the UK in 2012, but it took about two years for it to become released in the US. So it came out in 2014, right before their debut album, uh, "The In the Lonely Hour." Sam Smith's Sam Smith's debut album. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so just a quick aside that like uh, Sam Smith uh, identifies as gender as, nonconforming. As, Yes, gender nonconforming. Okay. Um, their pronouns are they, them, and so I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to be very careful. I don't want to misgender. Um, no, it's funny because, uh, you know, when you mentioned it, I was like intellectually and 
in theory, I'm very, very familiar with people introducing their own pronoun, their choice of pronouns and respecting that choice. But in practice, especially with the they, their pronoun, Mm -hmm. I have very little actual practice executing that out of my own mouth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to apologize because like, as I'm trying to distinguish between say one act and Sam Smith, it could get confusing. I'll try try and like make sure I clarify. So Disclosure's debut single was released in early 2014, mm-hmm. which featured Latch. And that was Sam Smith's first exposure to the world and to the U.S. in particular in 2014. That came out in the early spring. And then later that year, Sam Smith released his debut album in the Lonely Hour. Their debut album. Oh, sorry. Their debut album. <laughs> See, I already did it. <laughs> Called stay uh, with with the huge single "Stay with Me," mm-hmm. um, that hit number two on the charts, and uh, I'm not the only one. Eventually, hit number nine, making it their third top single, top ten single in 2014. Big year. They eventually earned four Grammys the following year for best pop vocal album, best new artist, record of the year, and song of the year. The following year, their song The Writings on the Wall was released as the theme song for the James Bond movie Spectre. And in 2016, that song received the Golden Globe and the Academy Award for Best Song. So The Writings on the Wall, it's it's, it's funny. For me, I hated this song, like Skyfall, until I saw it in the movie. Oh, you didn't like Skyfall? Because typically these songs come out before the movie. And so I was like... Eh. I mean, I see where they're going, but, you know, I felt like the song didn't go anywhere, right? Because it kind of peaks early. I guess once you look at it knowing that it is a Bond theme, for me, I guess I kind of, without even seeing the movie, I kind of envision it in that space, so... But that being said, I liked I liked Skyfall. I did not really like the writings on the wall. To me, I needed the context to see, like, you know, when they're all... They, they play in the opening credits, and so... I needed that context. Like in that setting, after the opening sequence, it goes right into Skyfall and it's so dramatic and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it it really hit. Same thing with the writings on the wall. That I never saw Spectre until maybe a year or two ago. I'm not like, I mean, I loved, I, I'm I'm a Pierce Brosnan, James Bond. Ooh, okay. Like, I, well, hey. Um, GoldenEye is one of my favorites and okay. GoldenEye Tina Turner is one of my favorites so <laughs> <laughs> I mean that song goes somewhere so it it, it was it, to me it was just the context but anyway huge huge hit huge mm-hmm. debut for, for Sam Smith their third album The Thrill of It All was released in November 2018 and the lead single from that Too Good at Goodbyes eventually hit number four in the US Mm-hmm. Oh, I should say, I'm sorry. That's their second album, The Thrill of It All. They're they're really po- incredibly popular and well-known for this sort of retro crooner sort of style. My biggest comparison is usually Adele. Mm-hmm. These big British soul-tinged ballads. Mm-hmm. It's very adult contemporary pop. Yeah, and they've got a really... Like Sam Smith has... A really, really distinctive voice. They do. I would say odd sounding. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Disclosure talks about how when they first heard Sam Smith's demo, they thought it was a woman's voice. And they were completely shocked to realize that it was Sam Smith's voice. You know, so he's he, he makes a lot of use of his falsetto. He's got a very specific vibrato. Or their general aura to me is, is very um, mopey uh, in a way. Agree. 
there's something to the quality of their falsetto that it's it's not airy and light in the way that most falsettos are. There's almost like a nasal crying sound to it. Yes. That I think contributes to that mopiness. Yes. One of the interesting things about Sam Smith is that they came out as gay right from the start. So, you know, mm-hmm. with their de- debut album in 2014, came out as gay and is arguably one of the most successful LGBTQ acts currently working in maybe ever. Yeah. In this area. Coming out didn't have a negative impact on their debut to no. mainstream adult contemporary pop radio in the United States. And and just to put that into some context. So of their top 10 streamed songs on Spotify, two songs, Stay With Me and Too Good at Goodbyes, have over 1 billion streams. I'm Not the Only One has 910 million streams. By comparison, Adele has one song with 1 billion streams, which is Hello, and her next highest is Someone Like You with 827. We want to compare even further to someone that like we think is huge, Beyonce. Her highest stream is Halo, which still drives me crazy, um, 810 million streams. And her next highest is that terrible duet with Ed Sheeran. I don't even like. The, I don't even remember the song. Um, it has five hundred and twenty-seven million streams, and that includes just literally the one that I gave it before I burned it. <laughs> and so, you think about the the amount of times that Sam Smith's music is played, or or is being played, or queued up. I think one of the things about Sam Smith is his music is that it's it just shows up everywhere. Like mm-hmm. the popularity and ubiquity is amazing, especially considering he's an or they are an, an out queer artist. Mm-hmm. But it's also like it's the Starbucksness of it all. Like I think of every time you walk into a Starbucks, it's hello or it's stay with me. Yeah. It's like songs that your moms or your aunties liked, but it's not like Luther Vandross or Anita Baker. It's just yeah. it's a very different sort of thing. You know, I, I actually own that first Sam Smith album, mm. but I have to say, like, I almost like that music in spite of his voice. Mm -hmm. I don't think that their voice suits that type of music because in actuality, like stay with me. I actually first heard that song performed on the voice by uh, one of the contestants, Josh, Joshua Kaufman and his version with his voice. I actually much preferred to Sam Smith's version. Mm -hmm. Like Sam Smith. I love in latch. I love. Yeah. uh, They did that second disclosure song. Omen. Yes. Yes. Those are the songs with like an electronic instrumentation that I feel like really bolsters Sam Smith's voice. It's a nice counterpoint. Yeah. Whereas the adult contemporary stuff, I always felt just kind of competed a little bit or it just felt like a disconnect. Like the Disclosure song and Omen, just because of the way the music is, there's a sort of optimism to each of those songs mm-hmm. or, or a feeling of optimism or a sense of joy. Yeah. Whereas all of the songs that Sam Smith themselves have released are about unrequited love and sadness, but without, say, the ballsiness of Adele. Mm-hmm. So, like, Adele has this brand of being sort of this ballsy bitch. Yeah. And and Sam Smith doesn't. He has all of the sadness, <laughs> and then it's done, you know? Yeah. So I'm kind of with you. So all of these things kind of contributed to why I kind of stopped paying attention, stopped caring about the music that they were releasing. And over this time, you know, there had been a few controversies with Sam Smith. It was revealed in 2015 that Tom Petty had secured an out-of-court settlement due to similarities with his song Don't Back Down. 
uh, or sorry, similarities between Stay With Me and his, and Tom Petty's song, Don't Back Down. They settled out of court, and Tom Petty and his co-composer, Jeff Lynn, were added to the credits of Stay With Me and were also awarded 12.5% royalties. There's also, there was also, I remember, and I can't find it online, but I, I've been listening to something at the, a, a while back, and they were talking about how many people assumed that on Stay With Me, that Stay With Me was recorded with a full gospel choir because it, so much of that song is the backing vocal and the mm-hmm. wall of sound. But it's really many, many Sam Smiths layered huh. over each other, just like with Mariah. And they, Sam um, has gone on the record saying, you know, a lot of people think that it was gospel. It's all me and I want the credit. Like, and I, look, I don't take that away from him. That's a really cool thing to do. But it there, there's, there may be a conversation to be had about like the appropriation of a gospel choir for commercial success. Mm. And who gets to have the coverage? Like who gets to be successful when they use a gospel choir and who doesn't? Because mm-hmm. gospel singers don't usually... It's not a huge thing, but it's it's like, you know, there, there's these little there's these little things bubbling up as, you know, different conversations that are sort of contributing to if you already are kind of like eh on the music, gives you a little bit more reason to just kinda disregard anything that there that Sam Smith was releasing. Yeah. In January of twenty nineteen, Sam Smith releases a duet with Normani, who's formerly of Fifth Harmony. Uh, what is it, Camille Cabello's nemesis mm-hmm, mm-hmm. called Dancing with a Stranger. And Normani was about to have a huge hit with Motivation later that year. So it was like great timing. I mean, it was just, it was perfect. It hit number seven in the US and in 2019 was the fourth most played radio song of the year. Mm-hmm. So Dancing with a Stranger is unlike any of the other Sam Smith songs in that it is a disco R&B pop production. Right. It's got it's got sort of 80s tinges. It's it's a lot more slick. It is much closer to the original release with Disclosure Mm -hmm. in Latch and Omen. It kind of gets back to that point. It's still sort of sad, but it's up tempo. It's sultry in a way that, Mm -hmm. you know, their previous releases were not really sultry. Yeah. Right. And I think that was a, a huge shift. It was a very I mean, it's. It's a good song. Mm -hmm. It piqued interest in what they were going to do next. Which brings me to my song this week. God knows, (laughs) 20 minutes minutes (laughs) in. How Do You Sleep? So How Do You Sleep was a single released in July of 2019, seven months after Dancing with a Stranger. It was co-written by Sam Smith, Sivan Koteka, Max Martin, and Ilya. And this song snuck up on me. I heard it while listening to some streaming radio or a playlist, which, you know, if you talk about like the success that Sam Smith has had in terms of streaming numbers, I think that's a key factor. Sam Smith's music is, is like on every playlist, coffee, chill, work, blues, you know, whatever, go to sleep, sad love, like mm-hmm. their songs are everywhere. And so I think they just get streamed and they sort of like blend into the background. And so I was surprised when I first heard it, I was surprised that it was a Sam Smith song because mm-hmm. it sounded to me like an Ariana Grande song. Oh, yes. It's sort of this this sort of mid-tempo pop ballad. And when I looked it up, so Max Martin and Ilya were two of the co-writers with Sam Smith and um, this fourth uh, Savan um, person. Um, I don't mean to say person. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I got it. I got it. No disrespect. No disrespect. <laughs> um, 
They did God is a Woman and Breathe In on her album Sweetener, which are two of my mm-hmm. favorite songs off of that. And this feels very similar to me. And and so I was like, oh, I like this direction, mm-hmm. right? And it's kind of like you can hum along to it. It's got a good hook. And obviously it's Max Martin. Max Martin's written for everyone. I yeah. mean, Ilya's written for everyone and produced for everyone. To me, sonically, they're very similar. And Ariana Grande... The reason I bring up Ariana Grande specifically is because, like, she is an artist who repeatedly has surprised me by showing up in my top artists on Spotify every year because <laughs> uh-huh. I underestimate how often I stream her albums because they are perfect work background music for me. Mm. So the song comes out in July. The video is then released, and it's unlike any other Sam Smith video. It features Sam dancing, backed by 10 shirtless male dancers. In waist trainers and really embracing his gender non or their gender nonconformity in a way they'd not really ever done before. Earlier that year, earlier in 2019, Sam Smith had come out as gender nonconforming and then slightly later then announced that the pronouns were they, them. And so this song comes on the heels and this video release comes on the heels of that announcement. And mm-hmm. until I was doing research on this on this episode, I had never fully watched the video. I'd always seen kind of screenshots. Mm-hmm. And I initially sort of was like, okay, kind of like, I get it. But also like, like, why, why you, why you, why now? And that video is actually one of the reasons that I think I really like that song. Like the, like the creative direction of that video is really stunning. Yeah, I agree. But to your point about like, why Sam Smith? Why now? Yeah. It, you know, because it is very referential I mean, I could be mistaken, but to me, it looks very referential of like ball culture. Yes. Yes. And so I want to talk about as we as we talk about this song and why it was seemingly a flop for Sam Smith. Why in a moment where there's so much focus on inclusion and diversity and so much support for queer artists that are promoting that, why no one was there to support Sam Smith in arguably one of the most successful out LGBTQ artists coming out with a gender non a gender nonconformist video, a statement, and it kind of just fell flat. The song has 574 million streams on Spotify. That is huge. However, it's half of any of his other, you know, his other two top hits. The song peaked at number nine on the US top 40. 24 on the weekly Hot 100, and then ended the year at number 83 for the year on the Hot 100. So it's a good song. I think we like it, but it did not perform like to the, I think, to the standards. I think the expectations for a lead single are much higher than that. Yeah. And these two songs together were teased as peaks at their third album. Um, And they said in October of 2019 that their new album would have fewer ballads and more poppy singles in the vein of these two songs. So that was last year. In February of this year, the third album, which was tentatively called To Die For, was announced with a release date of May 2020. Now, with the pandemic, it got pushed back. And also the album name is being changed out of, you know, because there's a... Oh, yeah. To Die For is really not... Uh, Man... I need to think about strategy stuff like that. Like I am so oblivious. To- <laughs> yeah, they were, they were very, and they've been very candid about that. Just doesn't feel appropriate right now. <laughs> I'm so oblivious to good taste. It's, it's just embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so the interesting thing about this is that those first, if you want to call them first two singles came out over a year ago. Mm-hmm. 
and then nothing. Yeah. Now the album has been pushed was pushed back from May to June, and now it's sort of indefinite. And a lot of the speculation has been, was it pushed back because of a general lack of buzz? Mm-hmm. In April, Sam did an interview with Pop Buzz, and it was during the pandemic, and they were basically saying they're reconsidering sort of the whole direction of the album and they may not release any, they may not include any of the songs on the new album. So how do you sleep and dancing with a stranger may not be on the new album at all. And he seemed, or they seemed really upbeat about it. And, you know, part of me is like, okay, that makes sense. I can understand, you know, as an artist, it's now a year and a half out or a year out. And um, a lot can happen in a year and a half. So maybe you're Mm -hmm. not in, in in the same place. It could also just be, you know, zhuzhing, like sort of the fact that like these two singles didn't do what they needed to do for Sam Smith. Yeah. But that's kind of where we're at now. It's a song that I think we both agree is a good song. I mean, commercially, at least Dancing with a Stranger was a huge hit. There seemed to be a lot of buzz for that kind of music from Sam Smith. Mm-hmm. It, that buzz seems to have gone away and 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 there's not really a, a huge outcry for more Sam Smith music. And 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 that brings me to my biggest question. I've mentioned a couple times, Sam Smith appears to be one of the most successful LGBT, out LGBTQ artists who did not come out late in their career, but came out right at the jump, and it has not necessarily affected their popularity, seemingly. Mm-hmm. And yet, why is Sam Smith not a queer icon? <laughs> I think that in some ways, gay men were not there for Sam Smith from the beginning. And let me tell you why. So uh, their album comes out in 2014, doing the press circuit. Sam Smith made a comment in Rolling Stone about Grindr and Tinder and apps sort of killing romance. And there was kind of buzz among the gays that it was sort of slut shamey and Mm -hmm. I don't do that. So there was that aspect, the sort of judgy thing. And then in a GQ interview in 2015, or they made this comment that was, quote, class and romance have gotten lost. We've become a bit lazy, not just in terms of music. I miss the days when girls would wear full long dresses and just stand on stage and sing. That's what I'm trying to bring back, that timeless element. I want to create music that people will be listening to in 50 years, you know? End quote. So you have this sort of, there's this perception that maybe judginess about the gay community, this sort of swipe at current pop culture and what current people are doing and, and a sort of almost seeming conservatism. I mean, the, uh, yeah, it, it reads sort of conservative. A little bit of above, he feels a little bit above it all. Yeah. A, a little bit make America great again. And I, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's hyperbolic. That's hyperbolic. But you know what I mean? Like longing yeah. for a imagined time where there was dignity and class and whatever. Like it, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't this free for all that it is. And in the same article, they're quoted as saying, I'm not Sam Smith, the gay singer. I am Sam Smith, the singer who happens to be gay. In context with all of these things, many people started thinking like they interpreted that statement to be like, it's okay to be gay, but not too gay. You know, like there was a respectability politics kind of coming into play. Yeah. 
So, so there's all of that, right? And then you have at the Oscars, while accepting the award for best song for the writings on the wall, they misquoted an Ian McKellen quote to imply that no openly gay man had ever won an Oscar and then dedicated their win to the LGBT community around the world. Basically, he, they had misunderstood or misquoted Ian McKellen. Uh, what did Ian McKellen say? Sorry. <laughs> well, Ian McKellen had said no openly gay man had ever won best actor oh so so sam smith was misinterpreting something that ian mckellen had said yes and then applied that to themselves and you know sort of took it upon themselves to then dedicate it to the world the lgbt community yeah across the world and so there was an immediate backlash especially from dustin lance black you know the oscar winning writer of the harvey milk biopic Mm -hmm. and um mr tom daly (laughs) Who I think he's probably more well-known at this point for being maybe Tom Daly's husband. I don't know. That's my perception. Okay. (laughs) Well, what have you seen of him lately? I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I I would have thought that Dustin Lance Black is the more famous of the two, maybe. I guess it depends on what you're paying attention to. I think in some areas of the gay community. (laughs) They are equally both solidly B-list celebrities, Yes, I think. Yeah. So uh, what I want to be clear, I'm talking about what had kind of come out at the time and what was coloring the perception, mm-hmm. right? I'm not saying whether or not their heart was in the right place or, you know, any of those things. I'm just kind of setting the stage for like why I think this, you know, there's been this buildup. Then there yeah. had been the gossip, uh, again, with Dustin Lance Black, who had called out Sam Smith for either tweeting or commenting or messaging Tom Daly. Uh, Dustin Lance Black was like, stop texting my husband or whatever. And I remember that kind of blew up because it just contributed to this overall sort of like new queer artist kind of fumbling around trying to figure out like, you know, clearly didn't really know themselves very well, but was also trying to, like, take a stand and be an icon and do these things. And I think people were just like, oh, my God, like, just stop. Right. Well, it's probably like a huge responsibility to try and shoulder that, mm-hmm. but also be someone who is themselves developing. Yeah. You know, their own identity, at, 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 like, simultaneously. Yeah. We talk a lot about how we're, we're we may be reaching an era where our community's representation in pop culture, um, whether it's in music or, excuse me, or in film or <laughs> in music, film, books, it's not like the coming out story and then the family disowns them and they die of AIDS. Yeah. That story is like less and less relatable to the generations that are coming up behind us. Yes. An argument could be made that a lot of Sam Smith's repertoire is sort of mired in that tragic gay story. And it does not speak to or resonate to resonate with the desire for gay or LGBT, uh, let's just say queer joy Mm -hmm. that I think people want. And like, like while while Sam Smith is out there and and you know his their music is is sort of percolating through the coffee shops of the world, you have artists like Years and Years, Ollie Alexander. Um, years and Years is a British pop act. Um, you have Troy Sivan, who um, 
is an out actor, YouTube star, singer who has sort of built this following of gay pop fans, right? Like with this sort of exuberant mm-hmm. still there's a lot of longing, there's there's loss, but it's it's an evolution. Choice of on song My 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 is an exuberant celebration of being gay like gay love. Yeah. Here's a question for you, you know, in regards to Troy Sivan and in talking earlier about, you know, the producers that worked on like Ariana Grande's music doing uh, these new songs for Sam Smith. Do you think there's an aspect of it where Sam Smith is generationally a little too old? Even when we're talking about the sadness, the unrequited aspect of being a queer individual, being kind of a generally generationally older aspect to queerness. Whereas Troy Sivan definitely is like a younger person. Ariana Grande, I mean, she's different, but like she is a younger person. Because I'll say that like my niece, who's like 16, idolizes Ariana Grande, probably does not care about Sam Smith at all. I, I think that's part and parcel of the strategy of Sam Smith's management and you know even himself he's gone on the record many times saying they're an old soul and you know what's not to like about that that first album of theirs i think it has an older appeal to it Uh uh-huh yeah it's by design and i would argue almost that dancing with a stranger the success of that might have actually had to do it might have had to do more with normani yeah you know that normani was making a huge impact with her solo efforts Mm -hmm. and that duet really to me it doesn't it doesn't rely more on her but i feel like it's more authentically a her song than a than a sam smith song it helped position sam smith as someone who could be hip yeah someone who could be like in touch with like the musical trends and could seemingly authentically put put out authentic music within that sort of sound does that make sense mhm and uh, unfortunately while they were trying to figure out themselves, other more self-possessed, self-aware artists who were further along in their queer journey were able to put out music that was of the moment and also speaking to that desire for for that from the queer community. Yeah. Right? Like address that desire. And so so years and years, Troy Savant, they've been releasing music about the same time that Sam Smith's second you know even as far back as the first album like they're contemporaries really and so you have sort of like as as a queer community in terms of like why they're not looking necessarily at sam smith as a queer icon you have this super popular sam smith that's sort of going in this direction then you have these other smaller acts that might not be as popular Mm -hmm. but are maybe a little bit more relevant yeah right and they're and, and they're going in this direction and like so by the time 2019 comes around sam smith announces that he is he identifies as gender non-conforming and there was kind of a meh sort of okay you know like because the i think the perception was they hadn't really been there you know so okay yeah. and i think to your earlier points those earlier gaffes at the oscars or with comments about queer culture to the media a lot of those gaffes colored the public's response to that coming out statement. Yeah. And that was the point I wanted to make that it all kind of colors why we're at this moment now. And you mentioned the video for how do you sleep being something that really made you like it. And it references ball culture. The reason I brought up the appropriation comment back 
with regards to stay with me and gospel was I think, you know, this it's a little quote unquote late to the party. And and I don't mean in terms of like a judgment on them. Like when you arrive mm-hmm. at that moment in your life, I, I fully support it. And like, I, I'm not saying that it's wrong or that it is sort of a, a calculated move. I'm just saying that like in the context of all this, this just shows how like the context can can be affected by everything that's going on, right? That everything was led up to this moment. And there was a plagiarism accusation back when the Sam Smith's career first started. Mm-hmm. There was maybe talk about appropriation of a gospel theme or gospel aesthetic for their most popular song. And then there's this sort of seemingly retrograde notion of gay culture and like what's respectable and now you have a video where you're performing gender nonconformity in, like you said, a very ref- ballroom referential style mm-hmm. as a cis gen- as a cis white man or cis you know a pr- cis white pr- man. There's we got to wrap our head around this this linguistic puzzle. Okay, so so okay, so what I'm saying is. But ball, ball culture, ball, ball culture is centered in black trans culture. Yes. And, and Sam Smith is not that. Is not that, is one of the biggest artists in the world and is putting out this video that essentially co-ops that culture. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's celebratory, but I think could be read as I think it's celebratory. And I think absolutely I don't believe there's anything but goodwill here and like an actual authenticity. But there's a reason why when it all the culmination of all of those things, this video comes out and people are like, really from you? Well, you look at some you look at something like that video and you're probably going to alienate all of your adult contemporary existing fans mm-hmm. all of your starbucksian devotees and then you're gonna have a swath of gay fans that will really love it love the mainstreaming of that mm-hmm. but then you're also gonna have a segment of gay and queer fans that raise an eyebrow about mm-hmm. that type of appropriation mm-hmm. right i mean it even happens you know every time madonna reinvents herself and she did a Vogue thing in the 90s. You know, she was doing EDM with Ray of Light. And to the mainstream, Madonna was like inventing those things. But behind the scenes, there were always people being like, these things have always existed and no yeah. one was paying attention. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you you get a similar reaction to something like, how do you sleep? Yeah. Except for the fact that like, I mean, in a way, that video was piggybacking on a little bit of a zeitgeist that was already in motion because of um, Pose, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Which I think people were really championing in terms of representing Black trans identities and ballroom culture, you know, from a more centered perspective, maybe. And I, I, you know, I think that's right. And I think that it's unfortunate that, like, that Sam Smith sort of finds themselves between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. Because even if you mention Pose, it's hard for Sam, an artist like Sam Smith that it's going to look like co-opting this regardless mm-hmm. because they have the yeah. platform to do so. You know, there are other artists, so many of the artists that are pushing sort of gender nonconformity and or not pushing, but like being out there and proud about it are, are queer artists of color. 
and they don't have half of the success or a fraction of the success of a Sam Smith. I, I think of a, yeah. there's an artist named Vincent who's fantastic and is starting to become more popular has a single um, on the Queer Eye season five soundtrack. That's that's great. Yeah. Um, Alex Newell from Glee, who was a breakout star on Glee, ended up being, mm-hmm. um, in, you know, in the uh, Tony winning production uh, once once on the island, once upon the, once on the island. Um, he yeah, plays something like that. Yes. Yeah, okay. he play, they play um, a, a female character on that. You know, just just playing with this the the just just the gender fluidity and, 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 and just, you know, and, and bringing that to the forefront that like, you know, these artists don't need to be in these boxes. Like their voices Mm -hmm. are transcending They're you know, they're, they're moving the conversation forward and they're doing the work publicly in a way that like, I think a lot of people don't feel that Sam Smith did the work. Yeah. And what I realized when I went back was how much of that reaction that I had to Sam Smith was a product of really being steeped in this narrative, this popular narrative about them being snotty, <laughs> sort of snobby, elitist, and sort of retrograde about you know gay culture and things like that. As I was doing this research for this, so so Sam talks about in elementary school going to going to school in like a uh, full face of makeup, you know, mm-hmm. constantly, and did not do that when they came out. Um, with their album, but was like unabashedly gay, but you know had had always kind of played around with sort of gender with 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 gender, mm-hmm. but didn't know any gay people. Was the only out kid in their school, and then essentially became a superstar overnight, and didn't have the typical sort of gay experiences. And it wasn't until they were on tour in Australia and they had met with the Australian publicist who lived with his partner of 18 years, that person sat Sam Smith down and introduced them to classic gay books and, and you know, um, introduced Paris is burning and just queer culture and what a gay life could be, what a queer life could be. And like sort of all of that. And what you realize is like he was 22 or they were 22 on the world stage. And Figuring all of this stuff out, and I think about us when we were that age, and like if we had been thrust on the world stage and our understanding of where we fit. I mean, when I was 18, I saw the movie The Broken Hearts Club, and it has these four um, queer act, or not even four gay guys played by Timothy Oliphant, Billy Porter, Andrew Keegan, Zach Braff, Zach Braff like the, the Dean Kane. Dean Kane is in there. Yeah, it's crazy. They're all straight actors. They're all straight. That's what I mean. They were they play straight actors playing gay, which was revolutionary at the time because everyone thought it would be toxic. But you know, it's about their lives in West Hollywood. And I remember in eighteen being at eighteen being like, I am not that kind of gay man. I don't even know people like that. Like very judgy, right? Cut to four years later, I was like, that's you, that's you, that's me, that's you. You know, like, it was just such a a shift. And I realized, like, that's literally what's happening here, right? Yeah, you're growing into your identity. They talk so much, Sam Smith talks so much about, like, just how much heartbreak and anxiety and pain Every time they open their mouth trying to say something they thought was empowering or thought was like helpful, realizing that like they just didn't know enough or hadn't considered this other thing and just being mm-hmm. brutally <laughs> like, you know, pilloried. I don't think that there's necessarily 
a preparedness to media train like LGBT personalities. They everyone forgets that like you learn a lot of things in school, you do not learn LGBT history. Yeah. Right? And so to expect someone just because they're on the world stage for the first time that they would suddenly have this understanding of the nuances you know, the history and the nuances of where we are now and like the, you know, the different struggles of the different, um, you know, parts of the community and be able to articulate that mm-hmm. in real time, you know, while you're experiencing this huge fame is, is kind of crazy. And so I, I really, it made me take a look at just sort of my perception. And, you know, we were talking a lot about how like with this podcast, we're talking about being able to take a second look at songs because maybe, you know, whatever the narrative prevented it from being a hit. And I think that's perfect. I think this is the perfect encapsulation of that. I think that the process that even I went through in terms of looking this up and, and really diving into Sam Smith's story made me even reconsider them as an artist mm-hmm. and being really actually hopeful for this new album. Because because one of the things I, I do want to say, like as as much as I was like, I had a maybe a slightly cocked eyebrow when I saw the, the video and the screenshots the first time, I did say at the time, I'm excited that they're finally figuring out who they are as a gay artist, mm-hmm. right? Like that was the sense that I got that they're now trying to figure out who they are, who they can really be and who they want to be. And I liked the direction it was going. I liked that it wasn't this maudlin sort of hellscape of loss, right? Like I liked where it was going. So all that to say, I really enjoyed How Do You Sleep? I hope that there's more of that to come and that more people can, can maybe take a second look at why they don't like Sam Smith and maybe reevaluate and just, you know, give some encouragement. <laughs> awesome. All right. So is it time for a break? Yeah. All right. Let's take a break. The song that I'm going to be talking about today is Ashanti's 2008 single, The Way That I Love You. It was the lead single off of her fourth studio album, The Declaration. It uh, peaked at number 37 on the Billboard Hot 100 and remained on the charts for 18 weeks. So I think that what you have to understand about Ashanti is that she achieved a massive amount of success very, very quickly. In the years 2002 and 2003, when she made her debut, she becomes the first female artist to occupy the top two positions on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart simultaneously. So in a single week, her her lead single, Foolish, and then What's Love by Fat Joe, featuring Ashanti, were at number one and number two on the Billboard charts. She then ends up having three top 10 songs on the Billboard Hot 100 when those f- first two songs, as well as Always on Time with Ja Rule, all chart in the top 10. And this is an achievement that had only ever been accomplished by the Beatles. Wow. But she actually points out that in that same period of time, the song, the, the remix for Ain't It Funny by Jennifer Lopez was also in the top 10 at that same time period. And Ashanti, she says she's an uncredited writer and background vocalist on that song. <laughs> I was like, are we going to talk about that? No, there, there, <laughs> there is a lot of controversy with Ashanti and Jennifer Lopez and comparisons and possible conspiracy theories. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, in essence, 
she accomplishes something that's never been accomplished before, which is that she occupies four spots in the top 10 on the Billboard wow. Hot 100. Wow. When she releases her deb- debut album, the Ashanti album, she sells 503,000 copies in the first week of release. And that actually is the Guinness World Record for first week sales by a debut female artist. Huh. So in this year of massive success, it's the first time that she's referred to as the princess of hip hop soul, right? And it becomes kind of controversial because I think that the public is aware that she's achieving so much so fast. And at the 2002 Soul Train Lady of Soul Awards, it's announced that Ashanti is going to receive the Aretha Franklin Award for Entertainer of the Year. Wow. In her first year out. I mean, granted, she's she's achieved all these records already, right? Yeah. But people were not happy about this. There was actually like an online petition started that got almost 30,000 signatures basically saying like, Ashanti doesn't deserve this. She's yeah. too new. There's all these people that have never gotten it, like Missy Elliott, Alicia Keys. Like, why are any of these artists that have a proven track record basically not being considered for this? You know, Soul Train, you know, they stand by their decision. Uh-huh. They actually get Patti LaBelle to present the award to Ashanti. So Patti LaBelle is out there just gushing, yeah. gushing about Ashanti, how she thinks that Ashanti is amazing. And she says at the end of her speech, she's a baby and we have to support our babies. Wow. <laughs> Which is kind of That's, an interesting, yeah. interesting take on Ashanti at yeah. the time. Yeah. So at the time, it seemed like Ashanti was just getting so much hype. And I really, I really never saw the point of the hype. Yeah. So going into some of those early songs of hers, I find those old singles of hers just extremely repetitive. If you listen to Foolish... I I wrote down in my notes, foolish is the same two measures repeated over and over again and go, go nowhere would not recommend. Mm -hmm. If you listen to that song, it's, you know, it's not unusual, I think for pop songs or R and B songs to, to kind of have a hook that just repeats on a loop. But what I feel like is very distinctive about Ashanti songs is that they essentially go nowhere. Yeah. In a lot of those early singles, it's that loop and nothing's added. Nothing's taken away there's no arc to it or anything Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you literally can get like almost a minute into an ashanti song and feel like is this ever gonna take off you know yeah and the way that i started thinking about it is that ashanti was signed to murder inc by irv Gotti, and her primary role originally was to write the the vocal parts that were to be featured in in rap songs like the hooks she was writing those hooks that were in like what's love by fat joe she Mm -hmm. was writing the hook for always on time And so when I think about Foolish or Baby or uh, Rock With You, those are almost like rap songs that are missing the rap. They're hooks without the meat. Yeah. Those songs are begging for like a verse that can like punctuate something in the meat of those songs. And it's just not because it's just it's a shanty kind of vocally riffing and then doing these kind of not super melodic verses. Yeah. There was a flatness. Yeah. Flatness for sure. I mean, there was an interview where um, Ashanti actually talked about the fact that originally on Foolish, uh, Jay-Z was supposed to record the bridge. Irv Gotti changed his mind at the last minute. And to me, the song suffers for it. Even though, I mean, even though that song was a huge hit for her, it to me, it just, it could have benefited from something else. Yeah. And in terms of, the way that her vocals are featured in the songs, you know, to me, like, they're always a little bit quiet. They're always a little bit soft. You almost can't tell if she can sing. 
if you had told me that Ashanti had the vocal prowess of someone like Cassie, I'd be like, oh yeah. You know, Ashanti did an interview with Entertainment Tonight in 2017. And in, in one of the questions they asked her was like, what are your least favorite songs to perform? And she said that uh, Baby and Happy, two of her original hit singles, that she doesn't like singing those because she always felt like it was too low for her vocal range. Yeah. And so, and but she she was told by her producers that like, no, they just want it to be more of a groove, more of a vibe, you know? And I'm like, oh yeah, like I can imagine that for her, it's probably, that's why her vocals are so quiet because they're so low. They're so under the track. <laughs> yeah, It's like a whole track just full of backing vocals at that point. And so to me, computes at the time that all these hits are coming out, they're just big nothings, you know? Yeah, yeah. In reference to Rihanna in our original episode, you had referred to the feeling that Rihanna was being foisted upon us. And that's how I feel about Ashanti in that 2002-2003 era. It was She was getting pushed at us in every direction, and I could not, it, I could not understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, I found a 2003 uh, New York Times review. And this is when um, Ashanti's Chapter 2 album is coming out around the same time as uh, Beyonce's solo debut for Dangerously, Dangerously in Love. The title of the review in the New York Times is The Solo Beyonce, She's No Ashanti. <laughs> I remember that. It, it, like on Beyonce, it says, if Jay-Z and Beyonce really are a couple, that might explain why their collaborations sound so tepid. Oh, God. Which is so funny. to th- that's That's in reference to the song Crazy in Love, which is like iconic to me yeah yeah in terms of ashanti what they say is the singing is restrained the lyrics are simple there are virtually no three syllable words and the attitude is breezy yeah what who did they pay what happened i don't understand that i don't know the funny thing is i think that that's a truthful assessment it is i don't think of any of those things as positive but they're being presented to me as though they're positives yeah and i think that's wild oh talk about a conspiracy theory so when i was thinking about talking about Ashanti, I considered just opening this whole segment with a reading from her 2003 book of poetry, Foolish, Unfoolish, Reflections on Love. But I opted against it. I don't want to get like any kind of copyright infringement for performance of copyrighted material. But, um, you know, we were were first becoming friends in 2003, I think. I either remember being at a Barnes & Noble with you and reading the book or being at a Barnes and Noble and like texting you or calling you about it. Cause I was in Barnes and Noble, like flipping through it. Like what the hell is this? I feel like we probably saw it together. Okay. Because I remember it was a small book, isn't it? <laughs> so like kind of- I mean, it was bolstered by the fact that it was a hard cover. So yes, it had yes, thick, yes. thick front and back covers, but it was not, it wasn't like a Russian novel or anything. I do remember us both feeling it was foolish. There was nothing unfoolish about it. I mean, it, it was just funny because I think at the time the media, really presented Ashanti as this like lyrical genius, just wise beyond her years. So, so smart. And to look at it through that lens, this book of poetry is really terrible. But if you think, well, she was a, she was a teenager. She was between the ages of 13 and 16 when she wrote all of this. Yeah. If I just think like, Oh, this is this, these are the poetry writings and musings of a smart teenager. Yeah. Do they deserve to be published? I don't think so. Again, in true Ashanti form, I think there's very few three syllable words in this, but 
you know, I was, I was just kind of revisiting it. Cause I was like, Oh, like, was this as bad as I remember it? Like, I remember being very cynical about it, but it, it's, it's, it's not good. It's just, you know, I feel like there's something sad about why there was such a nar- strong narrative. I don't know. Maybe it's just me being cynical and 20 years later and understanding like, why were they desperate to champion someone? Like who were they in opposition to who? <laughs> Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's funny because I feel I came out of this really respecting Ashanti mm-hmm. and I kind of felt bad for being so cynical about her earlier efforts. Uh-huh. But I stand by my assessment that none of these were good. Yeah, I think those can be true. I think it was mostly that like we were being presented Ashanti as, again, the princess of hip hop soul. And I don't think any of this passes muster when you look at it through that lens. <laughs> Okay. So after that initial period of 2003, 2004, there's some added elements that go into her career that I wasn't aware of in terms of like why Ashanti kind of fell off the map. In 2003, Murder Inc.'s offices are raided by federal agents because Murder Inc., Irv Gotti, they've gotten themselves kind of entangled with a known uh, drug lord named Kenneth Supreme McGriff. The association, it seems like it begins when Kenneth Supreme McGriff, he actually has this like interest in cinematography and he wants to get involved in like making films. And it's that initial association that gets the feds kind of suspicious about like what's actually going on here, right? And so there, there's a suspicion that Murder Inc. has been um, laundering money, right? So at this time, I th- you know, Murder Inc. is this label that has a deal with a larger label, Def Jam, to basically kind of Mm-hmm. funnel their business through them but once once this all goes down def jam is like no this is this is not good for us we're severing the relationship yeah. very quickly in the midst of all this severing of ties ashanti needs to release another album to fulfill her contract with def jam and that's when the it's like a compilation remix album called collectibles so she quickly releases that and basically def jam is like okay that's it you guys are out in the midst of having all these legal troubles, in, in the process of being investigated by the FBI, Murder, Inc. is essentially on hold until they can find another partner label. And it isn't until, I think, 2006 that they finalize an agreement with Universal. And then it's not until 2008 that the declaration, which features the song The Way That I Love You, you know, it's not until 2008 that that comes out. So between collectibles and the declaration, there is a period of about three years. Um, another thing that kind of creates a bumpy road for Ashanti and Murder, Inc. is that Ja Rule has a very public beef with 50 Cent. And it kind of starts when 50 Cent is just coming up and Ja Rule's already kind of at the top. But it continues into the point where 50 Cent becomes very, very popular, right? And he, um, you know, with G-Unit and Dr. Dre and Eminem, like they form, they form this unified block, basically. All these people really side with 50 Cent. There's different stories about like, was this about Jaw Rule trying to be Tupac? Or like, you know, there's there's rumors that the beef actually has to do with Jaw Rule's association with Kenneth Supreme McGriff, the drug lord that actually brings about the legal troubles for Murder, Inc. And that 50 Cent didn't like McGriff. But it's all very unclear. But it continues for a long time. They do like lots of back and forth diss tracks. And as 50 Cent stars rising, 
and Ja Rule's is kind of sinking and he doesn't have as many allies on his side publicly. Mm-hmm. It's a bad look for Ja Rule. It's a bad look for Mur- Murder, Inc. And Ashanti kind of gets drawn into the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So the other aspect of Ashanti's career that starts to hit the skids is that she is increasingly having personal tension with Irv Gotti, who runs her label. There have always been rumors that Ashanti was with Irv Gotti. Ashanti has consistently denied the allegations that she ever had a relationship with Irv Gotti. Irv Gotti's story about this has changed over time. In 2013 on The Breakfast Club, he explicitly says he and Ashanti have never slept together. Mm-hmm. But by 2019, Irv Gotti's story has changed a little bit. So he's a part of this reality television series on WeTV called Growing Up Hip Hop New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. And in an episode of that show, during a conversation that he's having about the potential for a Murder, Inc. reunion tour and getting together with like Ja Rule and Lil Mo, he notes that There are particular artists that he doesn't have good relationships with, that he hasn't spoken to in years, that he knows that fans want to see, but he he just doesn't know how to negotiate getting them. And his wife calls him out and basically tells him to name names. And of course, he's talking about Ashanti. And in this conversation, he seems to confirm that he and Ashanti had a relationship of some kind. And in the show itself, it's implied that this relationship with Ashanti was what broke up his marriage. So what happens is that Wendy Williams picks up on this story in her like hot topics, her gossip Uh segment on her talk show. Yeah. First of all, Wendy Williams fucking hates Ashanti. I don't know what experience she has with Ashanti, but it seems Uh like she has this longstanding just hatred and complete disrespect for Ashanti. So this story comes up in hot topics. They're talking, they, they play the clip from this show and Wendy Williams basically just shits all over Ashanti. Um, Shortly thereafter, Irv Gotti actually appears himself as a guest on the Wendy Williams show. And you get the sense from their interaction. I mean, she, she makes reference to it, but they're actually friends. So Irv Gotti wants to make this appearance on the Wendy Williams show in part to kind of clear the air and tell his side of the story or to explain kind of like what the reality show showed that wasn't true to life. Mm -hmm. And he clarifies that, yes, he did have a relationship with Ashanti, but it did not end his marriage. That when he was with Ashanti, his marriage was already on the rocks and he and his wife were already separated. So he wants to make that very clear, but it really reignites this question in the mind of the public about what really happened between Ashanti and Irv Gotti during that time. Mm. Now, by 2004, Ashanti was in a somewhat secret relationship with Nelly. She's only recently begun talking about it and admitting that, you know, this is a relationship that she had been in for a long time. But if you kind of connect the dots between this whole gossip surrounding Irv Gotti and then Ashanti's entry into this long-term committed relationship in 2004, Mm -hmm. and then you look at the things that Ashanti began noting about her career in the period around 2005 on, Mm -hmm. it seems like there was some type of retribution made against her by Irv Gotti. And whether that had anything to do with an actual relationship or a flirtation or a desire on his part to be in a relationship with Ashanti, we really don't know. It's all kind of he said, she said rumors at this point. Mm -hmm. But it seems pretty clear that it had an impact and that he began making decisions on her behalf that maybe weren't in her best interest. Uh uh 
you know, famously, uh, or maybe not famously, um, when, <laughs> we've gone down a road. When Fabulous, <laughs> uh, when Fabulous records into you with the, with the Tamiya, yeah, it's, it's a it's a it uses a Tamiya sample, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was a that was an existing Tamiya song, right? Yes, I'm so into you. Yes, it was her first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so fun fact: the album version of that and the actual original intended version of that. Ashanti had recorded the Tamiya part. That got released though, right? It did. It did. I hate it. When, <laughs> well, that aside that aside. Because Tamiya is still alive. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that 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 is very weird that they decided to re-record something. Anyway, anyway. But Irv Gotti made Ashanti unavailable to shoot the video for it. And so, in a scramble to release that song as a single and with an accompanying video, Fabulous was like, well, let's see if we can get Tamiya in here to re-record it. Mm-hmm. And of course, Tamiya was like, yeah, that's, yeah. What, that's my song. That's my song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Tamiya shot the video for it. And that song was released with Tamiya instead of Ashanti. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Nelly music video where Nelly wanted to have a photograph of his fictional music video girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Just featured as like a prop, basically, in one of the shots. And as a courtesy, he reached out to Irv Gotti and was like, hey, I want to use a picture of Ashanti. And Irv Gotti's like, hell no. Hmm. And so in that music video, they had to swap out the prop with uh, a photograph of Sierra. Can I just say, men are so gross. <laughs> like, that's the point of it. Like, all of this, it's like, we're ostensibly talking about Ashanti, but it's like, the whole reason that we have any feelings about it is because of like what the machinations of these men have done. Oh, completely. It's disgusting. Even to think about media personalities like Wendy Williams Mm -hmm. that really play a huge part in perpetuating the idea that these women are talentless, that they're just sleeping their way to the top, Mm -hmm. that they don't deserve any of the success that they've achieved. Mm -hmm. Or respect. Yeah. I mean, I had to check my own assumptions because I have to say that like that what I had absorbed from my understanding of all the gossip in all these years, I really thought like, oh yeah, Ashanti, she doesn't deserve any of her success, you know? But then to look back on it and realize like, oh, she was holding it down for murdering. Mm-hmm. She was probably paying all their paychecks. Yeah. And yet I feel like my perception prior to doing all this was like, I really didn't value her contributions as a songwriter. I mean, I don't think that her songwriting is revolutionary or groundbreaking, but the fact that she did it, mm-hmm. The fact that she gets writing and production credits on all of her songs. And that they're unqualified successes. Yeah. Or for the most part. I mean, those those early songs were unqualified successes. Yeah. You know, it's th- those are the things that I feel like are erased mm-hmm. for a lot of, I want to say especially like middling kind of artists. Because I feel like the same thing happens to like Christina Milian. Mm-hmm. I feel like we look similarly at like Rita Ora now. You know, that there's a lot of speculation about like, well, how does someone like this rise through the ranks of the music industry when they're not, when they're not Beyonce, when they're not Mariah Carey, you know, like if you're not those things suddenly, like as a woman, you're eyed with suspicion Mm -hmm. in interviews about this time, Irv Gotti is very vocal in saying that he feels like Ashanti abandoned him. You know, he put all of this effort and love into making her a star and when he needed her, when he when he needed her support, she wasn't there for him. You know, and this is actually one of the claims that Ashanti goes to all of her interviews to clap back on. She says, you know what? During the trial, 
2005, I was in Canada shooting John Tucker Must Die. Mm -hmm. Contractually, she could not leave Canada. And yet, she says she took like four or five trips in violation of her contract to go attend the trial. Mm -hmm. So she's very vehement in saying like, you know what? I rode that car until the tires blew out, until the windshield exploded, until the muffler fell off, until the car was basically on fire and completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. And I think that that holds up because this album that I'm going to talk about someday the declaration <laughs> it's like oh have we talked about it i thought we talked about it already. no i'm still talking about the backstory <laughs> why why i didn't like ashanti but why i'm coming around to liking ashanti um the declaration released in 2008 like it's among the last vestiges of murder inc at that point mm-hmm. she's either the second to last or last album released on murder inc before the whole thing is just done so now ashanti realizes that there's Uh, something in the milk ain't clean with her career. She's moving into the the declaration era. So this is going to be her, her fourth actual studio album, but essentially her fifth album after collectibles. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is her first and only release through murder Inc in the universal era after their, after they move away from Def Jam. And in part, it sounds like because of the controversy surrounding Irv Gotti and murder Inc, she opts to work with different people. In all of her previous music, Irv Gotti is given a writing and a production credit, but notably on the declaration, he is completely absent. And she takes this opportunity to reach out to like Jermaine Dupree. She works with Rodney Jerkins, um, Diane Warren, right? All featured on this album. And it's, and it's in this period that she talks about realizing that all these people that she's now reaching out to are telling her like, oh, like you're not at all what I thought you'd be like to work with. I was given the impression that you were a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where her realization comes into play of like, oh shit, like what has Irv Gotti been presenting about me to everyone else in my industry? Mm -hmm. In terms of the album release for Declaration, you know, things don't bode real well for this because they go through a series of false start singles with this album. So the original first single is a song called Switch. That song is scrapped, actually it doesn't appear on the album. Mm-hmm. And then they announce a new lead single called Hey Baby After the Club. That song also just kind of disappears. So they eventually stick with the release of this song, The Way That I Love You. Yeah. And I think when it comes to why I like this song, I think I first heard this song leak on the blog, That Grape Juice, which I was like really into around this time. And in contrast to those early songs of Ashanti's that I feel like go nowhere, this one at least has like an arc. It builds, it has a progression. I feel like vocally Ashanti's voice is featured in a way that was not the way she was being produced before. Mm -hmm. And I think that this was the first song where I was really like, oh, like, you know, Ashanti doesn't have an iconic voice, mm-hmm. but she can definitely sing. Because mm-hmm. it's also in this period of time that she is working on doing the Wiz on Broadway. Uh, okay. You know, yeah. so she's so she's kind of working to prove her vocal her prowess. Her vocal ability, yeah. Overall, it's just a much more engaging song to me. Hmm. One of my one of my uh benchmarks for like a hit song to me is like, does it get stuck in my head? Do I find myself humming the melody? Yeah. I could not tell you what the melody is for, like, Baby or Happy or Foolish even. The thing about those yeah. songs is I can only remember the, like, sample. Like, Foolish is like, yeah. na 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 Murder, Inc. You know, like, 
but if you asked me to like what the verse is, I'd be like, I don't even know what that song is about because I can't think of how it goes. I can only think of only you. And th- th- that's the thing is like uh, only you is another song that I really like by Ashanti because it, it has a direction to it. It doesn't feel aimless in the way that a lot of her original singles do. Yeah. But this takes it even a step further than only you. I think it becomes a much more musically interesting song and a song mm. where like I can actually mm-hmm. pay attention to the lyrics and understand what she's talking about, you know, but you know, maybe the damage had already been done to her career because obviously like her relationship with the person running her label is south has gone south. And so it just never really takes hold and the album just kind of disappears. Yeah. I don't even know this song. I didn't know it until last night. After that, Ashanti says in interviews that she was given opportunities to re-sign with other major labels. She said she had like seven offers. But at that point, knowing what had happened with her career and the management of her career up to that point, she was really hesitant to sign on to a 360 deal. And that's when she started her indie label, Written Entertainment, that has released all of her music since then. You know, so I think from outward appearances, Ashanti really is like popularly faded into obscurity. Mm-hmm. But I think she's probably come out of it a smarter businesswoman. Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. And and so hopefully in that regard, she's coming out on top. Well, and she, you know, I I, I think I mentioned to you, um, I think she was on the Ru- RuPaul's podcast mm-hmm. and had taught and, and RuPaul always has this fascination with um when people who don't come from money come into money. How did they learn good money management skills? How did they learn to set boundaries with their families or or other people in their lives who may come asking for money? Because, you know, I think RuPaul is very concerned about like losing it or being taken advantage of, um, you know, in that sense. And and the balancing the desire to be generous with needing to protect yourself at times. And and, um, I believe she went into it pretty deeply with Ashanti and Ashanti had talked about how her mom had from a very young age had kind of taught her how to manage her finances very well. And I think Ashanti has always had her mom as her manager. She's, I think she's so. one of those, she's like a momager type of personality. Yeah. Yeah. And helped really helped her from the business side, sort of, you know, even, even with all this personal stuff happening, try and keep control of what they could. I think that's why she has those credits, you know, and, and, and on always spending within her means too. I think that was something really important because something that Ashanti had mentioned is still a tradition is to take all of her friends for her birthday to the Caribbean for like a month or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's a tradition that they do every year. And I mean, it's, it's, it's been now what, 17, 18, 19 years since her first, since she first burst on the scene, mm-hmm. um, you know, she had she had enormous success right away and then it kind of petered out. So you do have to have sort of a long game. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a testament to her ability to plan and, 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 and just the kind of person that she is that, you know, she's still got that wherewithal and she seems very happy now. Yeah. At least according at least what I got from from that interview. I mean, so it sounds like she's doing really well. I'm, I'm glad for her. Yeah. And good, you know, good on her speaking about like all those early hits kind of petering out on her, but like good on her for getting so many writing credits. Yeah. Writing and yeah. production credits where like she's probably making a larger piece of the pie than artists that just sing, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's funny. I did not know this song when it came out. I listened. I, I do not really like it. Um, 
my my thing with Ashanti, I, I didn't really know all of the gossip. I mean, I know you always have. I know you've always kind of filled me in a little bit, or like, yeah, I knew. On I the didn't. Periphery. I really didn't know a whole lot about Ashanti. I think that that's part of why I never, I never really gave her any any mind. You know, I just. I just never liked her voice. Mm. I I never I never liked her voice. I I I like very few thin voiced pop stars. Yeah. Um. Uh, and uh, which was kind of the, it was kind of the vibe at that point, right? Mm-hmm. It was. It was. And I think I really resented it at the time. I think I went very deeply. I went the other way. I had been much more into pop, you know, up until probably about two thousand two thousand one, and then I went very deeply into neo soul. You know, Jill Scott, Erica Badu, India Re. Um, Vivian Green. All I went, I went very deep. I kind of went the other direction. I was like, no, mm-hmm. and I kind of fled that scene a little bit. I mean, it was always there, but I think this this album doesn't necessarily change how much I like her voice, but I do, I do like her, and I have a greater appreciation for like her contributions and just like her talent. I mean, it is, it is one of those things objectively. She's a very talented woman. And like you said, she's uh, comes across as very, very nice. And like a seemingly like just with all of that having happened and having achieved that kind of success very early on. And it's so quickly. And then, I mean, to have it sort of fall away in such a spectacular fashion, um, you know, has got to be hard. And to think about like what that must do to you as an artist. I mean, you know, in looking at this album, when I found out that you were going to be talking about this song, I looked up because I look at the album cover and I was like, Hmm, uh, because <laughs> it is a very like Beyonce at the time. Like there's a particular pose and hair and wind in the hair, wind in the hair, but like a big hip kind of hip kind of, and big kind of wavy yeah. wig or weave or whatever. Like the, it's very blown out. Um, hand on the hip, the legs, the emphasis on the legs and that pose. And so I was looking through sort of the timeline and, you know, it's funny, you brought up the New York Times article and saying uh, uh, Beyonce's no Ashanti. I feel like within that time, it had completely flipped, right? Oh, completely. In 2006, Beyonce released B-Day and, you know, Irreplaceable, uh, a whole host of other songs that really kind of started cementing her status yeah. as the one, you know, in relationship to this song, I, I like this song. It's again, it's not, it's not like the best song on earth. It's just surprising to me that this song is her flop song versus all of her other songs that were hits. Mm. Mm. But I know that at the time that this song came out, one of the criticisms of it and one of the reasons why it did not necessarily get positive reviews was that at the time people were like, well, compare this to the stuff that um, Beyonce was doing with like ring the alarm. Mm-hmm. That's how you get the emotion of this type of song. Mm-hmm. When, when Ashanti's doing this, I stabbed my boyfriend in a bathtub. Yeah. People were people by that time in 2008 were like, no, no, no. Like Ashanti isn't it. When it yeah. Comes to this yeah. Type of song. It pales into comparison to every song that Beyonce did on B-Day, you know? This album, The Declaration, felt like a response to B-Day, which had come out two years before. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, in the same year Ashanti releases The Declaration, Beyonce releases I Am Sasha Fierce, Mm -hmm. which then takes it to a whole new level. You have Halo, you have all this other stuff. And there was, it's, it's a bit like with Sam Smith. It's like, you have just completely... Like you took time, you kind of figured it out and you finally maybe got the people that you wanted to. But at this point, the world has moved on. 
You're a little bit behind the curve. You're behind the curve. You were behind the curve when you were trying to catch up. And like now you're even further, right? Like, and so I think the world had their Beyonce, their 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 princess, their queen of pop. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there's no room for a princess now. <laughs> it's like Beyonce came, sucked, and Beyonce sucked all the air out of the room for a lot of people, I think. Oh yeah. That there was just no chance and there was no desire on the audience part really. And I, you know, a lot of that is just manipulation, but for anyone, it's just Beyonce's hit. And then if you're anything below that, then <laughs> you're Christina Milian and all we hear is that you know, moved back in with your mom. Yeah, the world is divided to Beyonce's and not Beyonce's. I mean, to some extent, it's true, right? And then you have, like, Ariana Grande or something. There's a lot more beyond, like, Ashanti, Christina mm-hmm. Milian, you know. Um, I mean, when I think about, like, what happened to, like, Maya, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's weird. Like, a lot of a lot of those female R&B singers kind of fall off the map. Oh, and know? we'll talk about Maya because she has a good new song. Well, I say new uh, song came out last year or maybe even the year before. Not sure. Okay. Not really doing much, but I love it. And I was Okay. Like, so oh. so so you're saying I don't have to talk about Maya's um uh what was that breast cancer awareness single? My bra. Oh no. I was going to I was going to sing about I was going to talk about uh My bra. You remember that song? That was a good song. <laughs> I do not. I do not. Oh, so good. It was I'm like think- her it was her 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 pop love letter to her bra. Well, I think maybe I will take another listen to what Ashanti. Yeah, I will. Okay. Um, I mean, I hey, hey, it's it, again. I'm not. I'm not saying she changed the world or it's it's actually like a great album or anything. But it, it surprised me with how much I liked it, considering mm-hmm. how much I disliked her music prior to that. Okay. That is fair. And that's the, and that's that's my that's my full defense of Ashanti's uh 2008 single The Way That I Love You. And I think it is time for a break. <laughs> so let's 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 do a quick wrap up. Um, do you love Sam Smith more now having dug into the history of, um, how do you sleep? I think I definitely have a lot more empathy. And I think that's something that this experience made me realize that I generally speaking, and I think this applies to everyone, I think should just go through life with more empathy Mm -hmm. and understanding for people and question the narrative always why do we why do we feel the way that we feel about this person? Is it because of something we've read or something we've heard? Well, who wrote that? When was it written? What was going on? I think one of the things I, I, I realized while reading through some of the interviews with Sam Smith about their experiences was the way I felt about them was pulled from the headlines or a quick synopsis of the article. Mm-hmm. However, if you had read the interview, you would realize the context and sort of what they were trying to say. You know, I mean, that's not groundbreaking, but I think in this time where, you know, so much, I, I even might find myself now, I can't bring myself to read all of the news all of the time. So I might open the news app and look at the major headlines and be like okay i know what's going on yeah and it's like i really don't right and because like you you, what you're interpreting from that little snippet could be wrong and we're all looking 
to confirm our biases a little bit, I think. Exactly. Especially when there is there are so many headlines yes. to parse through. It, it really is like my eye just gravitates towards the headlines that I'm like, oh, this reinforces what I already want to know. I'm mm-hmm. going to believe this. I'm going to mm-hmm. skip over this. Oh, this, you know. I, and I think we all do that to an extent. I think it, it contributes to like polarization of views. I think mm-hmm. that it, you know, contributes to like cancel culture. I hate, I kind of hate that term because I feel like it's, it's come to mean something. It comes to mean something that's not, I, I think it's accountability culture or should be. Yeah. Yeah. It's so makes it so flippant, but it's like, no, like there's accountability. Like some of these things are, are action are, 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 um, consequences. Yeah. And I think that that's where we come out with like someone like Sam Smith, where we're almost ready to cancel them. Yeah. For these things that are just an expression of someone's evolving identity, you know, and their evolving understanding of the world. And and to be more generous about letting people go on that journey, I think. And 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 always reminding ourselves about the human behind that. I mean, there I think there's a there's a limit like when someone has shown you who they are, mm-hmm. I think you don't always have to, you know, you don't have to go on a, out on a limb for them, but but I think when where you can you can see a good faith effort mm-hmm. to really be trying to do better, and I think just as 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 people in the audience, I don't know how many listeners or you know the how many members of an of any artist given audience feel like it's their responsibility to give anyone the benefit of the doubt, you yeah. know, in, in the public. But I think that I think we should all try to be more conscientious. And so like to that point, I still do not really like Sam Smith's overall output, but I like where they're going mm-hmm. and I am happy for them as they go on their journey. And I'm excited to see where it goes because I really do like the way the music is trending. And I think that they have a long career ahead of them as long as they continue to grow and continue to find ways to express it. And, um, you know, I think it just it just may need some more time. Yeah. And especially with Sam Smith and figuring out their identity, both personally and musically, maybe there's a certain point where they just have to accept that they're not going to they're not going to reach that Starbucksian audience anymore. I think a lot about like Taylor Swift, right? making the transition from country to pop. She took a big a big risk there because she was automatically going to lose the core of her existing audience doing that. And she had to depend on her faith that there would be a new audience to kind of catch her and buoy her mm-hmm, up, mm-hmm, which, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part there has been for her. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like an oddity in that regard. Like if you had told me that Taylor Swift would be able to make that transition successfully, I would have been like, no, no way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think for me, looking at Ashanti's career, I definitely started to feel for her a lot more. You know, in terms of whether or not you like the music, I still feel the same way about all her music that I did Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. I knew all of the backstory. Mm -hmm. But it definitely highlights to me, like, the level of contribution that she was making in her own career and in her own music. And so my respect for her in that regard goes way up. What I think about, and this kind of this kind of is my my wrapping up topic for this, is when I think about between you and me going through this experience of researching someone for whom we did not have the greatest amount of respect, we obviously came through it with more respect and more enjoyment of this artist, you know, in general. And I kind of wonder like, 
if that's what it takes, if that's what it takes to truly appreciate someone, if what their if what their public perception is is so far removed from what you can understand when you do a real deep dive into them, yeah. is that something that the general public is going to do? Yeah. Right. Like yeah. what does it take? What does it take for again our headline-driven culture to see something in an artist that is maybe more nuanced that can then can be expressed in a headline? Yeah. You know, instead yeah. of it, you know, Sam Smith takes credit for all gay accomplishments on earth since the advent of time, you know, what are the headlines that we could see that would say like, oh, like I understand Sam Smith is a work in progress. They're evolving, they're changing, you know, mm-hmm. they're listening. In the way that like, fuck, we gave Caitlyn Jenner years and years to like try and educate herself, you know? Yeah. And the results are, st- we're still, I feel like for a lot of people, we're still like, oh, results are still pending on that whole Caitlyn well, Jenner thing and her. Uh, and her. <laughs> I mean, I think some, I think, I think to some extent, some people are just like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go back to Trump. <laughs> you know, now I'm, now I'm, now I'm reading the headlines that like Caitlyn Jenner wants to be Kanye West's running mate. Like What? I don't care. I mean, that could have come from like the Enquirer. I don't care. (laughs) But like in as much in as much as I feel like, you know, Caitlyn Jenner transitioning and having that period of time where we were encouraged to like, you know, understand like Caitlyn Jenner is someone who lived the majority of her life as a cisgendered heterosexual white male, a white male celebrity, a wealthy white male celebrity. So we were giving her that opportunity to adjust to like understanding what a broader trans experience is. Sure, but I I think I want to be clear about, like, when we say we were given the opportunity, what that means is she had basically the entire apparatus of the Kardashian machine and E and Ryan Seacrest to craft that narrative. We were asked to give, we were asked to give her the opportunity. Yes. Yes. And it was presented in this compelling way. You know, it was packaged. I mean, which is to take nothing away from the actual transition and, and just what, what that kind of visibility means and, and, you know, how that's helped to advance, you know, sort of our popular understanding of, of the trans community and like what, what trans people go through. But I think it's also, you need a machine to to do to help do that for you to some yeah. extent, right? Like a Sam Smith, as popular as he may be, and as award winning as or they may be, I should say, um, it, that's an individual who doesn't have that apparatus. And look at how rocky that was. Yeah, and I mean, you know, talking about needing machines to kind of guide you through that process. Like again, going back to Ashanti, she has removed mm-hmm. herself from needing that machine and we hope is thriving for it, you know, for taking more of the pie in that sense. And I think, and I feel that way, like Troy Sivan has also felt like someone that Troy Sivan's like a major label artist though. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, there's at least the impression to me that like he is more in control of his musical output and he has more direct. It feels like he has more direct access to his fans in, in as much as like I, my perception of him anyway is that he is more of like an indie indie artist. Well, he grew up on he grew up on YouTube. So yeah. I mean, the, it's part of that whole that whole this whole generation of artists who to your point are not removed from their fans by almost anything. Yeah. Everything about their career and everything is sort of tied into and comes out of a direct relationship and removing sort of the gatekeeper. Yeah. And it feels like it comes directly from him whereas I think that traditionally with like Sam Smith 
between Latch and their debut album, mm-hmm. there was more of a sense of like, oh, well, what is a label going to do with Sam Smith? Mm-hmm. You know, what are they going to do with that voice? You know, versus giving Sam Smith ownership over that. What is Sam Smith doing musically? You know, it, I think there definitely is the implication of that that layer of like machination, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it'd be curious because I think it gets back to what we were talking about before where, yes, that is that is absolutely a probability, but like in the interviews that they themselves had given were sort of espousing that this was the direction they wanted to go as well. And to kind of stay to move away, away from, okay. to move away from, right? Like, no, I don't want that. This is exactly like, what about what I do makes you think I want to do any of these other things? But again, it's like, how much of that is like out of context? Yeah. How much of it is just someone growing? I mean, I I feel like the way it was presented was in the way that they spoke about it, that Sam Smith spoke about it, was very, this was where they were at at the time, mm-hmm. you know? And that was a choice. And the label probably had us. I mean, I'm sure the label was like, yeah, that's commercially successful yeah. for us. That works for us. But I mean, I would just, I would just hate for it to be that Sam Smith's takeaway from this is to produce another adult contemporary piano ballad. I would say it's not. And I would say only because I there, I'm post a, a, a link to the video interview that they did in April of this year. The takeaway should be they're going to remove probably all of these other songs, the, these two songs that have been released mm-hmm. already, but not go not go back to another direction. They're going to continue to go in that direction, but with new material. Okay. That's, I mean, that's what they said. That's what they, that was their, you know, felt very joyful and like wanting to look in that, in that, in that direction. Uh, I mean, all the best to Sam Smith. <laughs> I really did like, I, I liked all of his newer or all of their newer singles mm-hmm. over any of the stuff that they had done in the past. So. Absolutely. hundred percent. Um, that's Sam Smith and Ashanti, two very similar artists. <laughs> <laughs> I see the, I see the connection, right? Like I, I think so too. Very popular early on, like incredible debuts. Um, and then kind of lost the yeah. plot for a variety of reasons. Get, so get yes. him back on track. All right. So is that it for us? I think that's it. All right. So special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Um, Songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And check us out on social at flopredeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash flopredeemer. See you next time.